Good afternoon, my conscious co-creators. Good morning, good evening, wherever you're tuning in from. Welcome to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity. I am very, very pleased that you are all here with me today. We've got a fascinating guest in store for us today, um, a woman who I'm, I'm looking very much looking forward to bringing her on the show. Uh, but first, of course, we have our little section from my book, Everyday Awakening. And uh, this section, probably very apropos for what we're going to discuss today, is entitled, By Changing Ourselves, We Change Our World. Changing our surroundings is easy. We can pick up and move to a different building or a different town. We can change our job or our business. But unless we change ourselves, we will eventually end up in similar circumstances. Like that friend of yours who always ends up dating the same type of person. Or the relatives who always complain about their coworkers no matter where they are working. Yes, sometimes a shift in our location is what we need to grow and expand. Then again, if we are expecting the change in environment to change our world completely, then we, then we will be disappointed because our energy and internal states dictate what kind of people and situations unfold before us. Our Energy attracts a certain kind of partner. Our beliefs draw various opportunities and experiences to us. Our attitudes will determine how we respond to what is presented to us, which will lead to specific results. If we find that we constantly end up in the same type of situation, then it is about something within us not the outside world. When we change, profoundly change on a deep level, our world changes. Our friends change. Our family changes. Our boss changes. Our job, our business, our career changes. It is a great opportunity and a source of empowerment that we can change ourselves and by changing ourselves, change our world. What do you want to change in yourself today? So, um, yeah, the, the, this section I wrote a while ago that really came to me because um, so often I, I've counseled people, especially on the relationship side, where they're always complaining about their partner. It, and, and it's like from one person to the next, it's almost like they're dating the exact same person. And it, it just was really highlighted to me in a big way of how it's really all about who we are the energy we give off and and what we present to the world uh, and and it's so interesting how we always we have this tendency to think that 
you know, it's these external circumstances. It's, it's, it's this other person. It's, it's my boss. It's my coworkers. It's, it's, it's about other people that we happen to be in whatever situation we're in. And I've worked with enough clients over the years to know that once a person starts to shift themselves, starts to really work through whatever stories, whatever feelings, whatever experiences we've had in life that brought us to feel a certain way about ourselves, about others, about life, about the world in general. When we shift that internal landscape, that's when the external world starts to change around us. And, and, and I guess it was really this, this sort of rev, really this, this, this section came from the revelation that like we can move out of our existing environment. You know, I've heard it often like, oh, I just need a change. I need to get out of New York City or I need to get out of the United States or wherever. And sometimes that can be a great catalyst for change. But if we just change our external environment without changing our internal environment, things are not going to be that different in the new place. Yeah, might be different for a few weeks, a couple of months. But then eventually we find ourselves back in very similar situations because our environment does not dictate our situations. It's our attitudes. It's our energy. It's our, it's the way we show up in the world, our presence that dictates our situation and our life more than anything else. I'm, I'm not saying there aren't external influences, not at all. But I'm saying that our internal environment is far more important than any external environment. So, um, yeah, so that's my section of our book. Kind kind of a little take on the old uh, phrase, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. But I say, by changing ourselves, we change our world. Um, because I've just seen it over and over again. When somebody really does do the deep inner work, when we really work towards healing whatever wounds are most present for us, when we do the work of shifting how we internalize our experiences, that's when things truly change around us. Um, and that's from my book, uh, Everyday Awakening, which of course you can get at www.everydayawakeningbook.com. Um, and uh, that just takes you to the Amazon listing. But if you're like me and you like to support those small independent bookstores, just just go to them and ask them to order the book. We're in a major distributor, so any bookstore can really get Everyday Awakening. Just make sure Everyday Awakening by Sam Leibowitz. All right, wonderful. So now it is my extreme pleasure to uh, welcome to the show uh, author and speaker Sophie Strand. 
Sophie is a writer based in the Hudson Valley who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. But it would be probably more authentic to call her a neo-troubadour animist with a propensity to spin yarns that inevitably turn into love stories. Ooh, I love that. She's the author of The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine, and her eco-feminist historical fiction reimagining of the Gospels, The Madonna Secret, was just recently published in this year. Her poems and essays have appeared in numerous projects and publications, including The Dark Mountain Project and Poetry.org, and magazines such as Unearth, Braided Way, Art Papers, and Entropy. It is my pleasure to welcome to the show Sophie Strand. Sophie, thank you for joining us today. Well, Sam, thank you so much for having me. And and I, I will take that quote as being the wisdom I needed tailored to my day. It feels very uh, and I deeply believe it. Um, so thank you for starting us off that way. Oh, you're quite welcome. You're quite welcome. It, it's kind of funny. You know, I'm just going through my sections of the book um, chronologically, you know, just from chapter one on. And mm-hmm. somehow they always seem to be so apropos for for who's coming on the show this week and, and what we're talking about. Um, but I'm, I'm really curious. I mean, obviously you're a writer, you're an artist, um, and, and you have a very spiritual, let's say, take on, on your view of the world. Was this something that, you know, you kind of developed um, throughout life? Was this something that was really sort of part of you from a very young age? Or was there something that sort of shifted how you saw the world that sort of brought you to this deeper understanding of the way things are? Thanks. Um, well, there are two parts to the, there are two answers. One is that I was raised by, you know, feral environmental animists who studied the history of religion. You know, my dad ran New York Zendo and was an editor at Tricycle. So he was inside of Buddhism for a long time. My parents write about the history of monotheism and how these early partnership and ecologically responsive traditions get turned into, you know, the monotheism of today. How does that transformation happen? What does it mean? What are the implications? So I was raised at a dinner table where there were Theravadan Buddhist monks, there were nuns, there were rabbis, theologians, and eco-anarchists. And I was, I was, I was as a child, invited to come in and ask questions. So I was lucky to grow up in a compost heap of every spiritual text in my household. And I was, wow. I was told to respect all of them, that they all had a different kaleidoscopic perspective and that I should, I should entertain each one. Um, but perhaps the most important thing that my parents gave me was that the world was alive. Every stone, lizard, blade of grass was alive, and it was alive differently in, than me. So that sparked humility and conversation, and so that I should be deeply responsive and um, good at listening to the world around me. So I'm very lucky that that was um, gifted to me in my childhood and ripened and fermented as I, you know, followed my own interests and went to school and studied the history of Christianity. But then the other answer is that when I was 16, I fell dramatically and mysteriously ill. And 
I think that was a real pivot point in my life. And it made me get more serious about questions of spirituality and environmentalism. And that really, I think, cemented my interest in these um, mystical realms. Ah, I see. I see. Yeah, it's often I've found when we're hit with a big challenge that we have to deal with, that that really kind of shifts our perspective on life and the world and often moves us into uh, some deeper realms. Yeah, who, who, order it off the menu. <laughs> I always say it's 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 not what you would want, but then you get it and you have it's it's kind of it goes back to the quote you said, which is if you if you choose to contract and be frustrated and upset, you have all the excuses to do it. But mm-hmm. if you can't move it, you have to collaborate with it. So yeah, right. that's been my teacher, my tricky dance teacher. It's been uh, <laughs> a genetic illness that has, yeah, has forced me to get pretty sober about life. Mm-hmm. And, and who's that little fur baby who's joining us? This is my dog, Baba Ganoush. Um, and he is a puppy in a new house. So I knew that he was not going to remain quiet unless uh, I was holding him. So this is how we're keeping him quiet. Uh, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. I just got back from um, Colorado. And, and while I was there, I was house sitting for some friends. And I was house sitting for this adorable um Portuguese water dog who was six months old and she was so sweet but oh yeah it's like you you had to be playing with her constantly he's usually pretty good but I just moved to a new home so he's he's a little confused Mm, gotcha (laughs) gotcha and and just out of curiosity where did you grow up did you because I know you're in New York State did you grow up in the city did you grow up upstate well, I got the best of both worlds. I was born in the city. My parents were working in the city. So my first couple of years were there. And then they moved up to Woodstock. So I was raised in the shadow of Overlook Mountain and a kind of feral, unofficial farm where we rehabilitated possums and swans and, you know, oh. raccoons. Um, but I still had a lot of um, contact with the city. And mm. my parents still worked there and commuted there. So I kind of grew up between the two. Yeah, I was actually before we were out in Colorado a few weeks before we we just went up to Phoenicia for the weekend and and visited um the, there's a, a Buddhist monastery up there and then we went in, of course into Woodstock and I just I hadn't been in Woodstock in years and in, in really a long long time and so it was it was nice just to be around that area and and uh, be in that environment again. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's actually it was the monastery that brought my parents up here because my dad taught there. So oh, oh, I, was, I had a Buddhist baptism there. So <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful, wonderful. And I do have to say, because you mentioned the uh, Theravadan Buddhist monks at the dinner table. So the former owner of the station who I took it over from 13 years ago, I took it over from him because he became a Theravadan monk. He donned his right. robes. And and he moved to to uh, back to Australia where he's from, and now he spends like three four months out of the year in the forests of Thailand and Malaysia, meditating in the forest. So th- th- there's always a special place in our hearts for uh, Theravadan Buddhists. Me too. My my godfather Tan Jeff lives in Thailand, and he is a Theravadan Buddhist monk. So yeah, close in family. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so we're going to take a a quick break. And when we come back, I'd like to talk about um, sort of your writings and and what sort of brought you um, to sort of think about um, this 
book, The Flowering Wand, you know, how long uh, uh, the process was to create it. But I really want to get into the subtitle of this book, which is Rewilding the Sacred Masculine. So I want to find out why do we need to rewild it? And and what was it about the sacred masculine that sort of drew you in to do to to all this writing about it? Okay, sounds great to me. Wonderful. So everyone, please stay tuned. Oh, and a big shout out to Patty, loyal listener Patty, who tunes in every single week on our YouTube channel. Thank you, Patty, for tuning in and, and sharing. Uh, let us know as the conversation goes along if you have any questions. So everyone, please stay tuned. You're listening to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity. We're speaking this hour to our guest, Sophie Strand, author of the book, The Flowering Wand. And we will be right back in just a moment. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy. And I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. What really drives success in business? Introducing Intangify, the show that explores the intangible assets that create value and growth. I'm Matthew Asbell, your host and an attorney focused on innovation. Join me Fridays at noon Eastern to discover how innovation, culture, and other intangibles shape driving companies from startups to established businesses. We'll share strategies to unleash your business's true potential. Tune in live on talkradio.nyc Fridays at noon Eastern and Intangify your business today. Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Welcome back to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity. We're speaking this hour with Sophie Strand, author of the book, The Flowering Wand. So, Sophie, you've been a a poet, a writer most of your life. What was it that kind of drew your attention to the concept of the sacred masculine? It's a strange answer, which is it was not what I intended. I Hmm. had spent five years, three and a half years writing a book about the Magdalene. So writing an eco-feminist reimagining of the story of Jesus, you know, resurrecting the ecology, the plants, the women, the voices that are erased from the canonical standard gospels account. 
Um, and in quarantine, I, at the very start of quarantine, I was supposed to sell that book, move it out of being a ghostwriter and writing other people's books and to promoting my own writing. And things really did not work out that way. Um, you know, quarantine was a real, you know, it was a, it was a bend in the river. It was a strange moment. And I was dealing with health crises, the death of friends and was in some pretty serious depression. And I thought, and I had, because I have very serious health issues, I was quarantining alone, uh-huh. completely alone for almost a year. And so dealing with isolation of a order, I couldn't quite grok, couldn't even understand. And so I started writing on social media, these experimental essays about the research I had done about the Mediterranean basis, basin, ecology, and mythic systems. So I was writing about my research that had inspired my novel that hadn't been published. And I was interested, I thought, okay, I'm a person who is allergic to patriarchy, but I can see that masculinity and patriarchy have been conflated. And that's not very kind to the biodiversity of masculine expressions that existed for many thousands of years before patriarchy eclipsed that um, forest of expressions. And so I was really trying to heal my relationship with the masculine by looking at these older archetypes and seeing how they were extremely fertile and could be much better to offer to our sons and our, our lovers and husbands and friends. And it wasn't fair to men to say that, you know, oh, here's one story and it's a bad story. Um, so I was doing it on my own for free, posting it on social media and never expected to publish the book ever, especially because I was combining fungal science and yeah. forest forest biology and myths and and it was breaking a lot of rules in a funky way but people seemed to respond to it and it kept me alive at a moment when I was in a real crisis and then luck would have it that inner traditions reached out and offered to publish it and I said of course yes rewilding the sacred masculine was not my subtitle it was their suggestion my original subtitle was way too queer and strange it was trans species magicians rhizomatic harpists lichenized lovers and lunar kings heal the masculine so uh, it, was, it was a bit of a mouthful and i'm glad that they directed me to something that was a little bit more legible but rewilding for me is really just saying there's healthy soil here we don't have to start from the beginning. We can mm. compost. We don't have to throw anything out either. Rewilding for me is not about subtraction or antibiotic approach. It's about composting. Mm. Everybody is allowed to the table, even people with bad stories. And we hope that when all these things inappropriately combine and meld, they will make good soil to grow something new. Um, mm. And so I always say work by process of addition. And that's how I tried to operate in this book, which is take figures that sometimes have been problematic or have inspired, you know, complex cultural paradigms and say, all right, can I compost you? Can I put something else in here that makes you a little bit healthier? Wow. Wow. It's it's such a wonderful perspective and, and, and sort of a unique way because I have heard over the years of so many people talking and I, and I totally agree with you that people couple the idea of masculinity with patriarchy and, and they're not necessarily, they're not the same thing. And, and although, you know, quote unquote, and patriarchy even itself is not necessarily a bad thing. It, like anything else, it's when something becomes out of balance, right? Exactly. It, yeah. it, it's when we go too far. And the same thing for me, for femininity, right? And femininity too out of balance cannot be a good thing. 
And it's finding that dance between the feminine and masculine and, and the appropriate way to ways of being at the appropriate times that, that really we need to learn the most. Um, so yeah, I, I was skimming through. I, I apologize. I did not have a chance to read the book before um, the interview, but I did see you talk about Jesus. You talk about Dionysus. You talk about um, Merlin and the King Arthur legends. Um, is there one particular legend or myth around masculinity that drew your imagination in the most? Well, I would say that my argument is that any monomyth is a narrative dysbiosis. That in I think of us as having a cultural mm. gut. And in, a, in your gastrointestinal tract, you have health because there are more microbes rather than less. Mm. And you come into trouble when you kill everything off. And that's when a monologuing pathogen gets to take up too much space. That's when patriarchy becomes its unhealthy expression. Um, you know, it has just too much space to expand. It's not kept in check by other stories. So I always hesitate to, you know, hi- create a hierarchy of importance. Say one story is more important than the other. I'm really interested in resilience ecology that says forests and ecosystems are more resilient in as much as they have more connectivity, more species, more chaos, more generative friction. And so for me, I have the stories that I'm drawn to personally, but I think the most important thing is that we all bring our stories to the table. Mm -hmm. I I mean, then of course, my other answer is that I have been fascinated with how a Galilean healing storyteller who is anti-imperial and perhaps even anti-agricultural becomes the figurehead of patriarchy, extractive capitalism, and ecocide. How does that mistranslation process happen? And, you know, I've devoted time. I wrote a novel about it. He features prominently in this book. He features prominently in a lot of my work because I'm really curious about how that happens. Um, And I don't think that's necessarily a healthy story, but it's a story we all need to collectively work to replant, rewild, and retell. Yeah, I. there used to be a gentleman who unfortunately has, has transitioned who was an astrologer, he used to do a show on the network called Living Consciously. And he was a Jungian astrologer. And he was very well educated in the ancient myths, the Greek Roman myths, um, and and uh, Campbell's work and the archetypal, archetypals, um theories and stuff. And, and he was always able to point out how like there's certain attributes to Jesus that predated him that there's that there's a, a lot of mythology around that story that if you look at it it's a mythology that actually predates and that was sort of co-opted into the story um but that doesn't mean that there's not value in those uh myths does it Yeah, I mean, my working theme of the book is that we can think of myths as being like mushrooms, which look like an individual above ground, but they're really a reproductive flourish of a networked fungal system below ground. So I oftentimes say that Jesus is the last mushroom in a rhizomatic continuity of vegetal gods in the Mediterranean basin. So you have 
Osiris, you have Addis Adonis, you have Dionysus, you have all of these gods that are associated with death, decay, refruit, fermentation, liberatory movements against empire, festivity. They're often the gods of women. They're oftentimes seen, seen as being uh, dangerous to empire and to hierarchy. Um, and of course, we can look at the Gospel of John as being written by someone who knew, who could lift from Euripides the Bacchae, and knew that the Dionysian tradition as having just been outlawed by the Romans could immediately assimilate, you know, the Dionysian priests and priestesses into the new Jesus movement. So Jesus is definitely like, you know, a continuation of Dionysus and Addis and Adonis. However, he is an interruption in the cycle because his body doesn't go back into the ground. He interrupts certain elements of that archetypal fungal system in a way that doesn't let the myth keep moving. I always say that myths Uh. need to move. Just like oral culture keeps stories adaptive and tailored to specific political, socioeconomic needs, when a story gets written down and is no longer responsive, when it when it fossilizes, that's when it can become a weapon. And so mm. Jesus' story is is not flexible. It doesn't move. It doesn't update. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. You you kind of touched upon, it, and I wanted to to talk uh, a little bit about the the flowering wand and and sort of the cover art of a gentleman holding a mushroom yeah and 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 why the mushroom sort of became so significant in this well i've always been very in love with fungal systems um uh you know there are millions of different species of 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 fungi so they all have different life patterns it's hard to create a kind of homogenizing universal idea of what fungi is but they're very interesting beings that have been you know underrepresented in scientific studies and i found out when i was in my early 20s that i have a connective tissue disease and felt that my love of the connective tissues of ecosystems was a way of me understanding the insufficiency of connective tissue in my own body So there's no cure for my condition, but perhaps there's a cure beyond my skin silhouette in my relationship to these mycorrhizal systems that keeps forests alive um, and keep the soil regenerative. Um, So I'm very tied to mushroom science. I also think mushrooms in the way they work complicate and interrupt our idea of atomized individuality that, you know, we live in in a culture you know, informed by capitalism that tells us that individual progress and neo-Darwinism tells us we're always optimizing, we're always evolving. But the truth is that the most biological novelty happens in moments of symbiosis, when two bodies burn the bridge to their old bodies and fuse together. So my favorite working metaphor with myth, with story, with, with, with our, you know, journey as human beings is Early plants, when they came onto land, didn't have root systems, and they fused with fungi, who acted as their surrogate root systems for millions of years. And even to this day, plant root systems have a very small radius, and ninety over 90% of plants still depend on those mycorrhizal co-evolved fungal systems. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 
things. Ah. We can look outside at every plant, every perfume, every flower is the product of this anarchic bodily merger that never stopped. And so for me, these moments of symbiosis, where we choose to collaborate with people, with species, with stories that are a little risky, are the moments where the most potentiality lives. So for me, fungi really teach us to risk thinking differently, risk changing, and risk collaborating with other people. Yeah, you know, I find it fascinating that you didn't hear, at least I didn't hear much talk about the mycelial network and, and fungi and mushrooms and, and, and the beauty that they are and, and the, the capacity they have to help us until about maybe 10 years ago. And, and I really credit Paul Stamets, um, who, who the, the documentary Fantastic Fungi is all about and, and his kind of life's work and really sort of bringing it to the consciousness of people. And now I much more hear about it out in, in not the necessarily the, the mass conversations, but in certain conversations out there. And I mean, for me, I'm, I'm with you. I love mushrooms as a kid and, and I've, you know, been hiking for years and I love hiking like in the autumn time when you oh, see a lot of different mushrooms starting to flower along the hiking trails. And I've seen some mushrooms that they just looked otherworldly. I was like, how could this thing even be created? And, and it was just so fascinating to then start to learn about the mycelial network and how, um, through the, the, the sort of underground network of, of the, the roots of the mushrooms, like connecting trees and forests and plants for miles and miles apart and how it really is acting as an interactive system not as such an individual thing. And, and as you pointed out, like we have this tendency in our very Newtonian brains to think of things as discrete and separate. Whereas we're now we're finding out more and more in, in more of the quantum realm that things are much more interconnected and that life on this planet is so much more interconnected than we ever gave it credit for. Yeah. I mean, that's what I love is that, you know, for me, fungal systems as they stitch together different species and because their cognition doesn't have a central node they don't have like a brain their brain is dispersed it's a distributed cognition um they tell me that my intelligence is not in here it's at the interface between me and my relationships so they show that intelligence is interstitial it's that mycelial system that connects different species and so it makes me more humble about how I think, how my ideas come to me. They come to me at the ecotones, the overlaps, where I meet other people and places and change in those relationships. Uh, uh, I see we have a comment on Twitch that says, I remember previously hunting for morels with my grandfather as a kid. Mushrooms are weird and cool and funky. <laughs> awesome. All right, it's time for us to take a next break. Um, when we come back, I would like to talk a little bit more about how we can use these lessons from nature to help us with what's going on in the world today. Because I do have a lot of concerns about what's happening in the environment and I would call it the unconscious or, or lack of response to it that in some ways is very suicidal of society. So I would like to talk about how we can take some of these lessons 
and and apply them to our lives to help to counteract that okay definitely thank you absolutely thank you so thank you for my listeners please stay tuned you're listening to the conscious consultant hour awakening humanity we do this every thursday 12 noon to 1 p.m eastern time right here on talkradio.nyc and we live stream of cross on all of our um, uh, social media channels to youtube facebook twitter linkedin twitch um, and if you have not yet subscribed to our YouTube channel, please go to youtube.com slash talking alternative and subscribe to the channel so that you can learn about all the other shows on the network. And we will be right back with our guest, Sophie Strand, in just a moment. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Welcome back to the Conscious Consultant Hour Awakening Humanity. So, Sophie, before we move on to talking about nature, I do have to ask you one thing around the mushrooms because psilocybin has become so popular lately. I'm just curious, um, is your, your connection to, to, to fungi have anything to do with, with the resurgence in the psychedelic community of, of, of psilocybin and using magic mushrooms? Um, I would say well predates that. Um, and while I think that, I think there is great potential in psychedelics to help a number of different issues, but the way that they have been immediately digested by a, an appetitive capitalist paradigm really worries me. And also I think that we can begin to individualize health with these 
plants that are often contextual beings that come from indigenous mm. traditions and, and we deracinate them from their web of relationality and from their indigenous heritage. And I, I, I see, I, I, I always hesitate to just give a blanket endorsement of what's happening with psychedelics right now. That gotcha. being said, I've microdosed with psilocybin. I've taken it and found it to be enormously helpful, especially with regards to post-traumatic stress syndrome, which is something mm. that I've navigated. So I, I, th- I would say that I'm, I'm, I'm in the gray area, which is I think these are incredibly helpful beings, but we have to be sensitive about the inheritances and the context they're coming to us from. Yeah, I think that's so important is, is, is not to separate sort of the, the, um, the medicine from the context of the cultures from which they come from. And, and again, it, it's sort of the lesson of the mycelial network again of the interconnection of it. And even what you spoke about of our intelligence being not so individualistic, but at that intersection between and, and that relational area between us and something else. So keeping that in, in, in mind, I think is, is very important. So thank you for that. Yeah. And actually this goes to kind of what you were talking about before, which is what does nature have to teach us? And a friend of mine who has worked with the indigenous people who have taken care of these traditions and these, these fungi for a long time says that it's not about you going and having your boutique experience that helps you optimize your personhood. It's about letting yourself be borrowed by some purpose Mm -hmm. that is bigger than the human. You know, how can you let yourself be borrowed in those instances so that you become more responsive and to your ecosystem and to your web of relationality. And I think that's an amazing question to just ask in general, yeah. you know, we have our hero's journey of our own lives, but we are, we are part of a web of relationality. How can we let ourselves be borrowed by the birds, by the plants and the bees and the flowers that are really suffering right now? Yeah. As someone once pointed out to me or, or made the comment is how does life want to be lived through us? Yeah. Like not how do we want to live life, but how does life want to be lived through us? Um, to, 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 to place ourselves back in context to nature. And so speaking of nature, uh, I've been following certain blogs and certain deep thinkers who are talking a lot and, and have talked a lot in the past around the ecological crisis and, and, but more specifically around almost the lack of response from the, the, the meta institutions of society to this severe um, challenge because the ecological crisis has the potential to literally destroy all of life on earth if we don't stop unsustainable practices and don't stop um, uh, thinking that everything is just separate and that, oh, we can keep going and and what we're doing is not affecting the world around us. And so I'm curious, how do you see like what you've learned through about the myths, about the ecology, like what can we learn and how can we take it in without getting depressed and without getting sort of fatalistic about what's going on, but how can we learn from it and use it to help us to live more in alignment with nature as opposed to misaligned with nature? Mm, yeah. I mean, I, I oftentimes go to the microcosm and the microcosm is that I have a condition that will kill me and has no cure. 
And that I, so I've been exiled from healing narratives that have me healing or getting better or optimizing or, or, or relying on a kind of facile hope. And so for me, I always say like, what healing is available beyond hope and beyond the human? And I think that as someone who has been an environmental activist, I see that our kind of solutionist activism has not amounted to anything except to exhaust us to make us less useful and and it hasn't shifted this giant ship which is you know um corporate america which is which is just you know capitalism that you know not everyone is equally responsible for what's happening right now it's a small group of people who have decided to drive us into the ground and it's really hard to hold that what i oftentimes say is that we can focus on how we live locally. Like lately I've been trying to get smaller and slower that friend and collaborator bio oftentimes say, says the times are urgent. We must slow down, which is there's a, there's a urgency of, of our culture. Our culture says we must fix things fast, but when we move fast, we often make more mistakes. Nature teaches us to move slowly, to stay with the trouble, to, to ask questions of the elders, the elders that are mountains and trees and deep time rhythms. And so I think we need to go into a period of radical listening to our environments rather than trying to solve our environments. We need mm-hmm. to do less. And when we do less, we go, we put our taproot deep into where we live. I'm really interested right now in growing food where I live, making mm-hmm. friends with people who live around me, who have a different political ideology than me. How can I begin to be more local, to bring my life back into the ground, to figure out how to actually plant my food, my waste into the ground so that I'm feeding the earth that feeds me. I think these things feel small, but they're huge. Um, and I honestly, I, I looked at a statistic, which is if Americans just slept one more hour a day, it would make a bigger impact on emissions than almost any kind of like plan, which is, it says like, we need to rest. We need to move. Yeah. slowly. We need to really slow down. So I would say that's where I'm at right now, which is, I don't have necessarily have hope that we are going to curb this without major, major cascading effects. I mean, this summer has been brutal and for people, birds, animals alike. I don't know where we're headed, but I know that I want to join hands with the people who share my ecosystem and I want to make them food and hear their stories and dance and make life as rich and deep as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally hear you. I totally hear you. And I love that idea of slowing down to just be present to, to what's happening around us. And I think that was one of the, in a way, gifts of the pandemic is it was an, a forced slowing down. Um, and, and I just recall how during the pandemic it was like nature started to come back yeah and and be, because there were less you know less travel less ships less everything um there were dolphins spotted in the east river there were whales spotted in the new york harbor i i saw last summer or the summer before i saw bald eagles flying around new york city never in my entire life did i ever think i would see a bald eagle wild bald eagle flying in new york city so it just goes to show that when we do slow down when we do stop 
we give nature an opportunity to regenerate and come back, but that it it's, takes us slowing down and stopping. And it, it was sort of a, a forced slowing down, but maybe there's something to learn from that. It sounds like what you're saying in that if, if we have do a self-imposed slowing down, that that perhaps can do more for us than, than anything else. Yeah, I've, I've been asking, I've been asking people in my classes and talks, I've been saying, how are you going to make yourself useless to capitalism today? Mm. How, how are you going to interrupt this idea that you are making the world better and changing it and buying and participating? How can you make yourself a little less useful? Um, that, you know, by, by becoming the kind of, you know, difficult screw, you can, you can be the bug in the machine. Um, we should just, you know, buy less, do less, love yeah. more, grow food, live smaller. Can you live in a way that doesn't photograph, that doesn't show up legibly? Um, you know, in the age of social media, um, it's it's very hard to think of an activism that's not photographable. But yeah. most of the most important work we, we have to do, it doesn't show up on a camera. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Oh, I, I could talk to you for hours. Okay, it's time for us to take our last break of the show. Uh, when we come back, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Madonna Secret and, and your new book coming out and, and what the future holds in store for Sophie Strand, okay? Thank you so much, Sam. Uh, you're quite welcome. You're quite welcome. So everyone, please stay tuned. You're listening to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity. We've been speaking this hour with Sophie Strand, author of the book, The Flowering Wand, and the even newer book, the Madonna Secret, and we'll be right back in just a moment. What really drives success in business? Introducing Intangify, the show that explores the intangible assets that create value and growth. I'm Matthew Asbell, your host and an attorney focused on innovation. Join me Fridays at noon Eastern to discover how innovation, culture, and other intangibles shape thriving companies from startups to established businesses. We'll share strategies to unleash your business's true potential. Tune in live on talkradio.nyc, Fridays at noon Eastern, and intangify your business today. Hey, everybody. It's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector, coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy and Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Lieber consultant and on my show the conscious consultant hour awakening humanity we will touch upon all these topics and more listen live at our new time on thursdays at 12 noon eastern time that's the conscious consultant hour awakening humanity thursdays 12 noon on talkradio.nyc You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day.
All right, Sophie. So tell us about the Madonna Secret. This is the book that actually you're working on before the flowering wand, but it, it you didn't come out till afterwards. So tell us about it. So it is my eco-feminist retelling of the Magdalene story. So I've I've always wanted to, I love the Red Tent by Anita Diamant, which reimagines the women of the Old Testament. And really, I've I've always thought Jesus was a nature-based storyteller who was profoundly woven into the animistic, you know, storytelling Jewish traditions of the time period. And we lose that texture in in when Romans, who are the very people who executed him, translate his story into their culture and their language. We lose so much of his environmentally radical wisdom. And so, and I've also always wanted to resurrect the women, the women who we know from the Gospel of Luke, supported financially the ministry, the women of all different backgrounds who, against all of the taboos of the time period, he invited to the table to share food and discussion. And of course, I've always loved and been curious that the Magdalene definitely seemed to hold a key part in the folklore and the early Christian traditions that are then deemed apocryphal when Constantine tries to create a, you know, a stable um, empire of Christianity. Um, And so I thought the best way to go into this would not be with some kind of authoritative piece of scholarship, but through storytelling. Because in storytelling, you can explore the empty spaces. You can keep the uncertainty open. Um, You're not making any kind of claim to an authoritative vision. You're saying, this is what could have happened maybe, but also you can tell it your own way. Um, So I tried my best to bring back to life the erased voices of the mothers and daughters and women and the plants and the animals and the Jewish practices, the biodiversity of Jewish practices of the time period, that we forget that Jesus did not self-conceptualize as a Christian. He thought of himself as a Jew as offering a new interpretation of Judaism. And so it was really important to me to bring back to life the complexity of the Jewish experience of the time period and how the resilience of a people who had been submitted to exile an empire after empire, still making sense of life, still able to create some kind of robust spiritual experience. I mean, we lose that when Christianity begins this anti-Semitic mistranslation process. And it was really, you know, half of my family are Israeli Jews. And it was really important for me to, you know, combat the ways in which this Jewish man has been used as a tool of anti-Semitism for so long. And so, yeah, I would say the Madonna secret is um, it is my attempt to create a story that is lush and peopled that, you know, maybe one person is telling the story, but it's a biodiversity of voices and experiences. Um, I began to write it at a period in my life when I was very ill and I was not sure if I would have much time. And I thought, what's the one story I'd want to write? if I had a limited amount of time. And I thought it's this one. Um, yeah. Wow. Wow. I'm curious, have you ever read or heard of the book Holy Blood, Holy Grail? I have. It was part of the family ecosystem growing up. They were my parents were fascinated with it. Yeah. Because I loved how they they postulate about what happened to Mary Magdalene after Jesus died and and coming to southern France with with Joseph of Arimathea and 
And, and, and I know people who've like gone to Southern France and look at some of the churches there and, and how there is a very strong Madonna presence there. So, you, you know, it, it's interesting how certain characters in history, especially female characters kind of get lost to history. Like they're not deemed that important. And then we don't know, we don't have the records like we do of the men of what really happened to them, but it's actually quite fascinating to explore, you know, what is the potential? Well, I always say that you have a big tradition <coughs> traditions the big tradition is is you know it's it's the victors and the victors are usually the educated men and then you have the little tradition which is folklore and fairy tales and what the people practice and what you have is a strong tradition of magdalene devotees going back to the first century and with a strong strong contingency in france so my frame narrative is actually that lucas the author of the gospel of luke goes up to france to find mary magdalene uh... where she is gone to get her story so I, I have a strong feeling that you don't get folklore that dense and that sustained without some an initial germ. Um, mm. So I would personally say that I think somehow that Magdalene myth got planted in France pretty early, whether by her or by someone else. It's hard to say. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, uh, uh, Sophie, I, I really appreciate your time today and I appreciate the work that you do and the, the voice that you're, you're bringing to, to the conversations. If people want to learn more about you and more about your work, where can they go? How can they find out more about you? Well, I have a Substack and I have a free version and a paid version. If you want, you know, works in progress, book lists, classes, you can join the paid newsletter. I send it out like three times a month. And if you want the free version, you can also sign up for that. I'm on Instagram where I regularly post podcasts, interviews, information, excerpts at Cosmogony, C-O-S-M-O-G-Y-N-Y. Um, and I, I, I've been a poor starving artist and I have been unable to access certain types of knowledge. So I give away a lot for free. I think I have hundreds of podcasts and talks online. You can search my name and I'll have done something that should be easily accessible. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I, I, I hope, uh, to support you in a way so that you can live a life, uh, not of a starving artist, but of a thriving artist. I'm, I'm, I'm making my way. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been wonderful. such an honor. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. And if you ever make it down to New York City for a visit, please let me know. I'd love to meet up with you in person sometime. I will definitely do that. And vice versa. If you come up to Woodstock, give me a hoot. I I, I probably will. I probably will sometime in the future. So um, again, we've been speaking this hour with Sophie Strand, author of the book, The Flowering Wand. Uh, highly recommended. It. It's very... Um, uh, poetic, I think, in its writing. And I think it really reflects all the things we've been talking about today. So thank you, Sophie, for taking the time to come on the show. I wish you the best of luck and best of luck with your health as well. Thank you so much, Sam. Have a lovely day and have a lovely day to everyone else listening. Yes. And of course, thank you, my loyal listeners, for tuning in every week to the show. Without you, there is no show. And if you missed any part of today's show, you can always catch the replay on talkradio.nyc and you can find the line streams and and of course the podcast on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple, Google, 
Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, wherever you love to listen to podcasts, you can find the Conscious Consultant Hour there. Thank you all for tuning in. Take care. We will talk to you all next week. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. What really drives success in business? Introducing Intangify, the show that explores the intangible assets that create value and growth. I'm Matthew Asbell, your host and an attorney focused on innovation. Join me Fridays at noon Eastern to discover how innovation, culture, and other intangibles shape thriving companies from startups to established businesses. We'll share strategies to unleash your business's true potential. Tune in live on talkradio.nyc Fridays at noon Eastern and Intangify your business today. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.